All right, Isaiah 53. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Tonight we're going to look carefully at verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Father, this evening we pray that you will help us to understand more fully the words of this passage of Scripture. And as we continue in it, Lord, in these next couple of weeks, every word that teaches us of the great and awesome thing that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us, that we may know without any doubt the price that was paid for our sins and the salvation that comes to those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity, the blessed privilege of having your word open before us. Lord, continue to use us to bring these words to others who need your hope and salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered why the gospel message is rejected by so many people who find it to be totally unbelievable? In other words, they consider it too good to be true. Shouldn't there be a lot more to being saved than simply believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead and desires to live within us and has promised to return to take believers home to heaven? Shouldn't there be a lot more to this? But now the question, who has believed our report, takes on a greater significance. Who has believed our report? But that, is, but that indeed is the message of the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is exactly the good news. 
To believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again for the dead. Paul says in Romans 10 verses 9 through 13 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that a wonderful promise? What's so hard about understanding that? What gives people such... Blockage of thinking when, when that message is given. Yet as we closed our introduction uh, last week to Isaiah 53, the, the question, who has believed our report, was, was valid in the days of Christ as it is in our day and age as well. For Paul uses the question a few verses later, if you still in Romans 10, notice in verse 14, The next verse he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. I mean, that in itself, if we just stop there for a moment and you think, you know, uh, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, the good news of peace. And think about what peace is when it comes to the fact that we have been separated by, uh, by sin and, and, uh, and, and really uh, animosity and war against God. And when we surrender ourselves to the love and mercy and grace and truth of Jesus Christ, the war is over. We're no longer at war with God. We're at peace. That is the gospel of peace. Those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. It makes you wonder, why don't people like good things? Could the problem be that today, you know, we, you know, we say that uh, when things are good, we say they're bad. That's bad. Well, did you mean that's good? Or did you mean that's bad? Because bad is bad and good is good, as far as the Bible is concerned. So what's wrong with good things? But notice verse 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. I want to stop there for just a moment and and direct my attention to this thought of emerging church thinking. That we need to change the way that we approach the culture of our day and the society of our day because, you know, Uh, The Word just doesn't cut it. Well, I'm sorry, but the Word does cut it. We've got to quit thinking that we have to change things 
to change the hearts of men. Our approach. Let's not preach so much. Let's just tell stories. Let's, let's kind of, you know, let's put some words around our experiences. Let's burn candles. Let's, wait a minute. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. Call me an old-fashioned guy, but that's just what I believe. But I believe it not because I want to believe I believe it. I believe it because I want to believe it, but I believe it because the Word of God says it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And as for the next question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, which we said of last time seemed to have been out of place because while the arm of the Lord pictured God's strength, power, and might, we see in these verses a suffering, weak Messiah. We saw a little bit of that in the last three verses of chapter 52. We see a lot of that in this chapter here. But as one commentator put it, the glory of the suffering servant must be equal to the shame that he endured. The glory of the suffering servant must be equal to the shame that he endured. And you can see that comparison, if you will, in the last three verses of the last chapter. Which was our introduction to this chapter today. And so we now look at the portrait of the suffering Savior, which points us to his most glorious work that he was to undertake in order to settle the sin question forever to the perfect satisfaction of the infinitely holy God. The suffering Savior has come. The suffering servant has come to settle the sin question forever to the satisfaction, to the perfect satisfaction of the infinitely holy God. This great messianic prophecy is is referred to numerous times in the New Testament, and each is directly applied to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice, if you will, in uh, in Matthew chapter 8, if you will, turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17. Notice it says, When evening had come, they brought to him, to Jesus, many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. He himself. That's speaking of Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. It's pointing to Jesus as the suffering servant, the suffering Savior. In Acts chapter 8 now, if you'll turn there, in verses 32 through 35, we've gone over this a few times since we were studying Acts chapter 8, and even in a few uh, studies uh, during the holidays. Verse 32, the place in the scripture which he read was this, that was the Ethiopian eunuch. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away, and all. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And that passage of scripture comes from Isaiah 53. And then if you'll turn all the way to 1 Peter chapter 2, near the end of the New Testament, 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, Peter says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the suffering servant, the suffering Savior, is presented to us as the sinless substitute for sinful men. To him our sins were imputed. In other words, our sins were accredited to him so that divine righteousness might be imputed or credited to us who believe in him. That's a tremendous transfer, if you will. That our sins were credited or imputed to Jesus. So that divine righteousness might be imputed or credited to us who believe. His humble, lowly life. His rejection by his own people. His deliberate and voluntary subjection to the suffering of the cross. His atoning sacrifice. His glorious resurrection and the victory of His gospel and the salvation of a great multitude of sinners are all foretold in this chapter clearly and to the point. No one but the Lord Himself could have given us this extraordinary extraordinary description of the character and work of Messiah Jesus so long before He came into this world. You see, the prophet Isaiah wrote this prophecy some 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, so as to fulfill all that was written of him. And God foreknew all that his son was to endure, so so he gave this message to Isaiah to hand on to future generations. And here we are tonight receiving that message. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You know, there is a contrast to point out between the arm of the Lord, verse 1, which, which speaks of great mighty power, And a root out of dry ground, which is actually a picture of humiliation and and weakness. Well, add add to that the tender plant as well. Consider this for a moment. In creating the universe, God used his fingers 
Psalm 8 verse 3 says, When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. In creating the universe, God used his fingers. When God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, he did so with his strong hand. We're told in Exodus 13 verse 3, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No living bread shall be eaten, but the important focus is on the strength of the hand of the Lord to bring them out of the place where they were. Created the heavens with his fingers. He delivered the children of Israel with his hand. But to save lost sinners, what does he do? It tells us he bears his mighty arm. He bears his mighty arm. And that arm is Jesus himself. We've touched upon this in, in, in the recent past. The arm that is speaking, the arm, uh, that, that it's speaking of here, the arm of the Lord is Jesus Christ himself. But isn't it something that people still refuse to believe in this great demonstration of his power? I think of Romans 1 verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first or for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But I want you to notice something, and I, I know that we've covered this again before, but it, it, it bears worth repeating, and that's in John 12, verses 37 through 40. It says, but although he had done so many signs before them, speaking of Jesus, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has, been, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. A powerful statement is made here. The very fact that the Lord has done what He has done, and people still do not believe, comes back to that very issue of the will. The Lord actually said to many of those who he had spoken to in his day and time, he said, you will not believe. He doesn't say you can't believe. He says you will not believe. Yeah, I have to stop for just a moment. I, 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 I sense something here that, you know, some of you are in here, you don't, you don't want to be here. And, and uh, that, that kind of really burdens my heart, you know, that I, you know, I'm going through some passage of scripture here that is, that is uh, uh, eternally meaningful, and, and it seems like you're in here because you're being punished. I hope that's not the case. I'm just got to say that because it's just a little bit distracting to me to see that you're not really in here to study, but you're just in here to kind of sit and maybe take a nap. I hope that's not what you're here for. Well, I have to say that. Let's go on. So the suffering servant, the Messiah, is God in the flesh, becoming human and growing. In that blessed phrase from Isaiah 9, verse 6, which we heard during Christmas season, I'm sure, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, that phrase there, 
The child being born speaks of his humanity. The son being given speaks of his deity. But now the words in verse 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. It just brings to mind that this is the answer to the questions in verse 1. This is the answer to the questions in verse 1, that the Messiah in his origin and appearance was lowly, modest, and humble, and for this reason Israel did not desire him or believe in her Messiah. You see, the previous verses that, that depicted his exaltation showed that he would come in a glorious manner. And so his true coming would not at all correspond with their expectation, an ideal which had been formed of him. They expected him to appear in a royal manner, you see. They expected the Messiah to come in some grand appearance, in some grand fashion. Majestic, in all glorious splendor. But that's not how Jesus came. Jesus did grow up, though. He did grow up. We're told in Luke chapter 2, verses 50, well, verse 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He increased in wisdom and stature. But as a tender plant, which is considered weak and vulnerable and insignificant, Jesus grew, it tells us, that He grew before Him. In other words, it says that He grew before the Lord God. He grew before the Lord God. And you have to understand the concept here that anything weak in God's presence is strong. Anything weak in God's presence is strong, sustained by that very presence of God Himself. Because I want you to consider the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7-10, through when he says, "...and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure." Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. That is Jesus, in effect, speaking to Paul. And, and Paul goes on to say, therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And, and what, is, what is important here to see is that Jesus has been there for us already. He's been there as that tender plant growing, increasing in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. So that when we find ourselves to be weak before God, we're not weak, but we're strong. Jesus always goes before us when we need Him. 
And boy, do we need him. As for Messiah being called a root out of dry ground, it is important to note that Israel was not anywhere near a paradise when Jesus was born. Politically and spiritually, Israel was a wilderness of dry ground. Rome was oppressing them politically, and spiritually they had not heard a word from the Lord, and no miracles or prophecies of any great consequence had taken place for 400 years. Now it is within that 400 year time period, you know, that there was the uh, the work that was done within the temple uh, during the time of the Maccabees, and you know they brought about the you know the festival of, of, of Hanukkah and all, with the filling of the oil for the the eight days and nine days. But uh, but but in fact, for the for that whole time period, the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, as it were, there were no prophecies, no miracles. And no real word of the Lord to his people for 400 years. Can you imagine the silence? I can't even imagine the silence of 400 days. That's just a little over one year. What about the silence of 400 hours from God? I don't think I would even want to have 400 minutes of silence from God. 400 years. And think of the words the Lord spoke in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, when he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Notice. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns. Now that's, by the way, cisterns, are, that's not the opposite of brethren. There's brethrens and cisterns. No. A cistern, of course, was, was a, a collector of water, a, a, a reservoir of water. Hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The first sin was one of omission. They had forsaken their God. The second was a sin of commission. They had replaced their true God with idols. That will make anyone or anything dry. As a desert. It is important to remember that God can bring about the most beautiful things even out of dry ground, even out of what seems to be parched. God can bring rivers in the desert. You know, it's interesting that in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says something about himself that, again, gives us indication of who he is in a grand way. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He said, I am the root and the offspring of David. The root of David and the offspring of David. That is what it says Grammatically, I am the root of David and the offspring of David. Because Jesus Christ is 100% God, he is the root of David. But because he is 100% man, he is the offspring of David, you see. And this root and offspring of David said this, 
This very same root and offspring of David said in John 7, verses 37 and 38. On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's look at the next part of verse 2. I think we have that concept well in hand. Jesus can be a root out of dry ground because he is living water as well. But the next part of verse 2 says he has no former comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now to God the Father... Jesus was precious beyond words. To God the Father, Jesus was precious beyond words. Now, I think we've all learned something from that kind of parental love of children. It didn't matter how ugly we were, our parents still loved us anyway. I don't even think about it, man. I, I don't know about you, but I tell you, I saw a picture of me when I, you know, just... Hours after I was born, I said, man, that's ugly. You know, ugly. Boy, Bill Cosby, you know, used to say that, you know, when his first kid was born, it looked like a lizard, you know. So it just, you know, the things that are said, you know. But, uh, But parents love, you know. They just beam. That's the most beautiful baby ever born in the whole world. Of course, uh, you know, second to Jesus, but, you know, (laughs) it's the most beautiful baby. Oh, and then it's worse with grandparents. Grandparents are even more beautiful. (laughs) But to God the Father, Jesus was precious. Precious beyond words, but but to the unbelieving, you see, it was really to the unbelieving that he had no form or comeliness, which means, comeliness just means that he had no beauty or, or attractiveness. In other words, men did not recognize. And, and we're not talking about just, we're not talking about the outside. Please understand this. What is a real person anyway? But everything that a person is, inside and out. And men did not recognize the inner moral loveliness that Jesus had ever exhibited. Think about everything Jesus did on this earth. Think about everything that Jesus did and touched and said that caused multitudes to follow him. It's unfortunate that some people, commentators notwithstanding, have, have misunderstood the expression. He has no form or comeliness. Their, their thought is that, that Jesus as a man was, was repulsive in appearance uh, so, that, so that no one would want to look at him. <laughs> That's actually been written by some people. Well, you know, it just must have been pretty ugly. They, they missed the point. They misunderstood what this is saying. The idea just does not fit really with other scriptures. I you know, don't want to go into great detail. It just takes one to, to know. Well, it wasn't so much the outer. 
Although in Psalm 45 verse 2 it says, uh, speaking of Messiah, you are fairer than the sons of men. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. You're fairer, and it's speaking of His appearance as well as the grace that came forth from His lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. But it is wise though, it is wise to consider that Jesus attracted the crowds that He did because of His words and because of His works, not because He could wow with His looks. He was not ugly as some may think, but nothing about his physical appearance made him different from any other Jewish man. And that's the point. He came to, took upon, to take upon himself flesh. You see, a lot of people do an injustice, you know, when they draw these pictures of Jesus with these halos or this aura. Or they paint all these other people around, you know, that maybe they're listening to Jesus and they paint all these people, you know, kind of like this and Jesus like, you know. Or they go a little too far, you know, and they, they, you know, they, you know, here he is in the Middle East and he's got blonde hair and very light skin, you know. They're just trying to portray him as different than everybody else, but it says he came to be like us. Now, as people draw Jesus to be so pretty and so different from everybody else, there's a problem with that because that's becoming adopted, an adoptive thing by, by preachers, you know. They've got to look different than everybody else and they've got to wear different clothes and they've got to appear like they just came right straight from heaven before the meeting, you know. And they've got to have that glow, which, you know, lights and cameras and everything else can, can help along the way with all of that. Some guys really need it, you know. I would. I mean, gee, many Christmas. I would need all the help I could get. So I'm thankful that you get me warts and all, you know. Because I'm not here to impress you and to look good, you know. I'm wearing suspenders tonight, man, because the holidays just passing. Man, I can't keep these pants up, you know. You understand what I'm saying here? Man, I'm, well, you know, I've got to get on that treadmill here pretty soon. I mean, you know, we've got to change the way we're doing things, you know. Trying to get rid of all that sweets that you always give us so that I can, you know, get back into shape here. I'm not here to impress you, though. Not what we're here. And so the danger you see, and there should be also a warning here not to make a religion out of physical beauty as modern society has done. And on top of that, we ought to take care not to try to dress up the gospel to make it more attractive to the modern or postmodern mindset. And in doing so, we might just be, as one person said, drawing a curtain across the face of Jesus in His humiliation. You see, we want to paint Jesus real pretty, but we've got to see Him as Isaiah 53 paints Him. We need to see Him. Why? Because we need to see what our sin does. We need to see what sin does. Our sin. 
How must man see him to know what he did for them? In Revelation 5, verse 6, John says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, notice what it says, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Now, I don't think we really get that picture until we think about Isaiah 53. I don't think we get that picture until we begin to remember the words of John the Baptist looking at his cousin Jesus and finally realizing that's Messiah and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And I don't think we get the picture of, of all of this until we look back at the sacrifices that were done of the Lamb at Passover and, and, and on through the, the Old Testament to show what had to happen to be, you know, to have blood offered for the sins of the Jewish people. And John says he, he looked and, and he saw in the, in the midst of the throne, you know, we're talking about the picture in heaven. This is Revelation 5. We're not on the earth anymore. We're in heaven. And, and he says, and in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. But, but it's that picture of a lamb as though he had been slain. We can't get away, you see, from Isaiah 53. We need to see it. We're to see Jesus as the one who has been slaughtered and slain for our sin. And not until we see Him will we begin to realize the unspeakable cost that was paid by Him on our behalf. And how will, we be, how will, will He be seen when He comes again to His own people? How is He going to be seen? Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they, what? Pierced. What will they see? Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. But until Jesus grieved, there is no grieving on their part. And again, Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, Amen. But you see, we're not going to see Jesus on that cross again. That's done. But when He does come, and if we want to understand the fear of the Lord, I think you need to hear what it says in Revelation 1, verse 13 through 15. Because it says, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, 
as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were fine brass, or like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice, as the sound of many waters, you can read on. That's how he'll be seen. And that brings us to verse 3 of Isaiah 53 that says he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. When did this despising and rejecting begin? When did it begin? As we noted earlier, as Jesus was growing up, he found favor in the eyes of God and of men. But, but that would change when his earthly ministry began. What begins here was fulfilled in the days of his ministry on earth. Before that time, he would have been acceptable wherever he went, even as a young man of 12 years old. We're told in Luke 2, verses 46 and 47, Now, now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple. You know, Mary and Joseph were looking all over for him. And they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Found favor with men. But then his earthly ministry began. He began with 40 days in the wilderness. He began with the testing and the temptations from the enemy. He came out and he began to preach the kingdom of God. And he began to touch people's lives and people were being healed, delivered. Some would even be raised from the dead. And you would think that was enough for everyone to know and to believe and to see that this was Messiah. Showed every sign. But they didn't like the way he looked. They didn't like the way he came. Simple robe. A simple man. And then he was from Nazareth of all places. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? And he spoke of such beauty and the humbleness and meekness of the heart. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were blind to who Jesus was. And in calling him a man of sorrows as it does here, it would be unfair to consider Jesus as someone who was continually or perpetually cheerless and and or miserable. (laughs) There are some people who actually say Jesus never smiled. I said, Jesus never laughed. He was always serious. He was always gloomy. Because he was Jesus. He was the Lord. The Lord never smiles. 
Hard to believe that, isn't it? He loved children. Children loved him. And that, that's enough for me to know that, that when they came to Jesus, he wasn't there slapping them. Or sitting there making faces, get away from me, kid, you bother me, you know. He loved them, and they crawled all over him. I could just see him just climbing all over his neck, smiling and laughing, singing with him. I bet you Jesus had a wonderful voice, too. Now, there were certainly times when he showed great joy. Luke 10, verse 21 says, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. I want to see that someday. <laughs> Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. He rejoiced. But I suppose that any person would carry a certain amount of sorrow knowing that to be despised and rejected meant, meant that they were being considered the most worthless, worthless among men because that's what it meant to, to be despised and rejected. It, that's what it meant exactly, that, that, that they were being considered the most worthless among men. That's what they were saying of Jesus when they despised him and rejected him. The most worthless among men. In Luke 7, verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was despised and rejected. He was considered the most worthless of men. Now, again, it is important to note that Jesus never once felt sorry or sorrowed for himself. Jesus never felt sorry for himself. He never sorrowed for himself. He sorrowed for others. He sorrowed for others. The fallen. The lost. The desperate. Those in despair. Those without hope. Those that were destitute. Those who were without anything. He sorrowed over the hearts of those who had become lords over others. He sorrowed at the way man treated man. In Luke 19, verse 41, it says, Now as he drew near to Jerusalem, he, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Saying this as he was getting ready to go into Jerusalem, ready to go to his death, he wept for the whole city. And as for the statement, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him, 
He was despised and we did not esteem him. This would certainly imply that the people would have been ashamed of him because he didn't represent the things that were important to them. Imagine all the things that Jesus said, especially to those who were the religious, to those who were the ones who stood out, you know, in front of all the people as the, as the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, the holy men as they were considered. And Jesus said, don't be like them. From the outside they look great, but on the inside they're just dead men's bones. And he would say to them, as he did in Matthew chapter 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again, he says, you know, you do all of this meticulous stuff on the outside, straining even a gnat. But your heart's far from me. You don't help anyone else. You like to get the applause in the streets for the way you pray, and the way you look when you, when you fast, but you see, he came with a message of the kingdom of God and, 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 and the ones who should have known better, the ones who should have known the word, they, they, they despised him. Because he didn't represent the things that were important to them. What was important to them? What about money? Money was important to them, wasn't it? Luke 16, verse 13, if you'll turn there real quickly, it says that Jesus is speaking and he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Notice verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things and they derided him. They love money. And Jesus said, don't love money. (laughs) And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And I tell you what, thank the Lord for your jobs. Thank the Lord for your incomes. Please be people of integrity with what you do. And don't climb over the backs of others, as is the habit of the world, to, you know, just to, you know. The world is in a, you know, it's funny how we use a lot of animal terminology, you know. We live in a rat race. We climb all over people's backs to get one place or another like animals do. God knows the heart. What about social prestige? Consider Luke 15 verses 1 and 2. You could read the parable after that later, but it says, And all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to to Jesus to hear him. And and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, that's why he came. But you see, they were concerned because of their prestige. They didn't, they didn't like this idea that, that the tax collectors were surrounding Jesus. And the sinners, by the way. They liked prestige, but Jesus said, 
all are welcome. All come. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. What about reputation? What about reputation? Some people live by their reputation. Jesus, in Luke 18, verse 9, it says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I've, I've always loved that little phrase. He prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But then in verse 13 it says, A tax collector standing afar off, but not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally, in, in the Greek, it says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. As if there was no one else a sinner in this whole world but himself. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see how the words of Jesus touch every aspect of our lives? God blesses us and we want more. God humbles us and we complain. God advances us and we get proud. Let me ask you this, isn't he being rejected today for the very same reasons? I believe he is. I believe he is. But the good news is, that Jesus died for our sins. In spite of what man did to him. And in spite of what we did to him and have done to him. Should there be a lot more to being saved than simply believing that Jesus died for our sins and rose again? Desires to live within us? Has promised to return to take believers home to heaven? May I remind you what Paul said? If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just. And that's John, by the way. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God's raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Can it get any simpler than that?
Jesus said, he that comes to me, I shall in no wise cast out. He that comes to me, he'll be in my hand and and I want to take care of him. And no one will snatch him from my hand. He'll be in the Father's hand. And no one will snatch him from our hands. How beautiful the gospel message is. So who has believed our report? Who has believed? Let's pray.